I just couldn't believe that nature could do this, particularly fire, because it isn't like a flood which has the weight of water. It's just air, right? It's just hot air, but it generates so much energy in this new atmosphere that we've created by burning fossil fuels nonstop for 200 years that we're now really living in a different atmosphere that has different capabilities than most of us grew up with. And that is really going to take some getting used to. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Racton Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest is the writer John Valiant, author of books including The Tiger and The Golden Spruce, as well as other page-turning nonfiction that examines the relationship between humans and the natural world. His new book is called Fire Weather. It centers on the 2016 wildfire that ravaged Fort McMurray, a city that stands in the heart of Canada's petroleum industry. But it's really about every city, every home, and the lives of every one of us inhabiting this increasingly flammable planet. John, welcome to Cobo. Michael, so good to be with you. Journalists, whether they're online or in print, need to be in the right place at the right time. But to write a book about a newsworthy topic, it's different. You need to be at the right place two or three years before the right time. And you've been able to do that not just once, but several times. The Golden Spruce came out at a time of intense environmental activism and awareness around First Nations and the environment. The Jaguar's Children came out in 2015, right as the battle in America around immigration, border walls, and the separation of children and migrant families was about to reach its boiling point. And now Fireweather, the making of a beast, is about events that happened in 2016 and lands in print just as it seems the forests of Canada are on fire from coast to coast. So I guess my first question is, are these topics that just grab you and won't let go? Or are you conscious of the growing importance of a subject area, aware that it's only going to become more important two or three years down the road? Michael, I think, yeah, I think it's a both and uh, for sure. And there's, <laughs> there's, um, there's an intuitive nature or there's an intuitive aspect uh, to being a journalist. I really think to being any writer or, or artist, any any perceiver of experience in the world. Um, on the one hand, you're seeing what's in front of you and you're responding to it. In my case, as a journalist, I'm reading the news, but you're also feeling the zeitgeist and uh, you're feeling you know, trends and movement, you're feeling energy, and um, it's not as magical as it sounds. It's really just noticing um, patterns. And, and that's, you know, I have a, a real interest and respect in, I have a real interest in and respect for history. And there are a lot of patterns in history. And it, it doesn't determine the future, but it certainly informs it. And so when I'm responding to subjects it's it's at a very visceral and intuitive level and you know for example the jaguars children which is about a uh, a mexican 
uh, immigrant being smuggled into the United States. I was living in Mexico at the time. My, my consciousness was really raised around that issue. But I also, frankly, had a kind of uh, voice show up in my head that was speaking to me about this plot. And that is not a nonfiction approach to to writing. That was a novel. It was a work of fiction. Uh, but, you know, I think there's you are one is responding to the influences around them and not just in a in a literal intellectual way. You're also feeling it. And in, in the case of Fireweather, uh, once again, um, the, the West Coast has been burning for quite a while. California is famous for terrible fires. Australia is also legendary for massive fires. When you scratch a little bit at Alberta, you get to see there are some colossal fires that have burnt there over the over the years. And then when Fort McMurray caught fire in 2016, that really seemed to me like a turning point because it was it was such a large place. You know, there were 90,000 permanent and temporary inhabitants. Um, the, the fire swept through the city, not just in an afternoon, but literally for days. Uh, and this was when some of the local lakes were still frozen when uh, there were car-sized blocks of ice on the riverbank uh, along the Athabasca River. And that created, there was sort of a dissonance there. And I thought, wow, if a fire can burn with that intensity under those circumstances, when there was literally frost on the ground five days earlier, then this can probably happen just about anywhere. And so, again, I just kind of used my imagination, uh, which is great for fiction, is, you know, can get you in trouble, you know, with nonfiction. But I, you know, used my imagination and then I started look at, looking at history and patterns. And the two, uh, uh, coupled with conversations with fire scientists and, and just looking at predicted trends from scientists and climate scientists who are very good at what they do, uh, showed me that this was not a one-off. This was not a freak event. It was an extreme event, but it was not a freak event. And it was logical to anticipate more of these in the future. And when I, once I realized that, I live in Vancouver, I live in an old wooden neighborhood that is very flammable. Uh, we had a heat dome event in 2021. I was already well into uh, fire weather at that time uh, into the book, but it reinforced the, the vulnerability of Canadian cities and towns. And really, as we're seeing from the news now coming out of Algeria, coming out of Sicily, coming out of Portugal, um, towns and cities all over the world are, are increasingly susceptible to uh, intrusive fire. And as you brought up in the book, even Vancouver is a city that has burned before. And these is some of these these events sit just outside of our living memory. We forget that cities can burn, and uh, and you take some time to reintroduce us to some of those great fires that have happened in cities around the world in the past. Well, eighteen eighty six, Vancouver was a, a tiny place compared to what it is now. I think it was you know comprised about a thousand buildings, of course, all wooden. Uh, and they had a you know really hot day. Uh, a sixty knot wind uh, blew up uh, off Georgia Strait, and uh, a runaway slash fire. You know a, a pile of you know cut logs and 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 wood slash um, 
got away and burnt through the town and burnt it. I, you know, my understanding is it burnt down in about 45 minutes. <laughs> and that's a, a terrifying thought. And we, for so long, we've really thought of these big urban fires as historical events or as military events. You know, there were there were terrific uh, and terrible fires during World War II. Most of those were set intentionally uh, by firebombing raids. So, you know, Dresden and Hamburg in Germany, uh, actually 67 Japanese cities were firebombed by American bombers and just horrifying scenarios replayed over and over again, Tokyo being the most famous, but there were 66 other cities that, that burned that way. But we we associate them with, in a way, controlled events, meaning, you know, a military bombing. Um, and the idea of these uncontrolled events that we've been experiencing more frequently now in California, in Australia, uh, and now in Canada, uh, really is, is sort of a shock to our system. But in a way, we've, we've lived in this very protected uh and almost a historical time you know the, the past 50 or 60 years have been relatively damp historically and with terrific fire suppression and a certain amount of good luck and <laughs> um what we're seeing now though is predicted trends in global warming uh all of it a result of uh increased fossil fuel burning that's been you know going on for roughly 200 years now uh, that the CO2 and methane buildup has now become apparent uh, to us physically in terms of just how we experience temperature. It's just hotter to be in the world now. But also, the hotter things get, the more they dry out. And it's really not unlike your laundry out on a on a line on a summer day. You know, the on a hot sunny day, it's going to dry in 20 minutes. On a on a damp cloudy day, it'll take all day. And forests aren't that different, and nor are neighborhoods. And on hot, sunny, dry days, they are more susceptible to fire. And with this increased heat um, and all the ancillary effects of that, uh, we're getting a more explosive environment, which is really alarming and coming on, I think, faster than anyone really predicted. And I'll come back to that in a, in a second, both the changing conditions and the changing nature of of wildfires but to to start us off can you introduce us to fort mcmurray sure fort mcmurray is really an anomaly in north america it's a a it's the fourth largest city in the subarctic uh after edmonton anchorage alaska and fairbanks alaska comes fort mcmurray and it is a petroleum boom town there's no other way to describe it in the 1950s it was a backwater uh, in the 1960s, Suncor started uh, building um, its its massive bitumen upgrading uh, plant, and the mines started to expand. The, the bitumen mines, known as also known as tar sands or oil sands mines, that now cover really thousands of square miles of of excavated boreal forest. And as um, bitumen became processable into feedstock for southern for the southern petroleum industry particularly the american petroleum industry um those uh processing plants expanded and they require tens of thousands of workers uh to function and so a lot of eastern canada uh and people from other parts of of the country too flocked there for 
extraordinarily lucrative job. So in, in 2016, the year uh, the, the fire broke out in, in Fort McMurray, the, patro- the, the global oil uh, price had, had dropped dramatically. And this is significant in an oil town. Despite that, despite the, this uh, really crash in oil prices that happened in 2014, the median household income in Fort McMurray was nearly $200,000 a year. And I think that makes it pretty much the wealthiest municipality in North America. And there's some pretty wealthy municipalities, especially in New York State and California, um, Silicon Valley, places like that. And Fort McMurray, 600 miles north of the U.S. border, a five-hour drive through the boreal forest from Edmonton, had this incredible standard of living and this incredible income. And it was really, you know, we all know it's, you know, it's a, it's an energy powerhouse. Uh, but it's also, as we discovered, susceptible to fire because it's planted directly really in the center of the boreal forest, which is the lar- largest forest system on Earth. It uh, comprises almost a third of, of uh, northern Canada, and it's a fire-dependent system. And so that is a weird concept. You know, we've all been taught to try to prevent forest fire, that, you know, a green forest is a healthy forest. In the boreal, it needs to burn in order to regenerate. And and that this is because some of the tree species there, including black spruce, they have cones that will not open unless they're heated to temperatures higher than sunlight alone can achieve. And so they need to burn for the cones to pop, the seeds to release. And what this tells the seeds is that the canopy is now open to sunlight and rain and that the ground is clear and it's sort of it sort of tells the seed it's your turn now it's your turn to grow and you won't have anything crowding you or competing with you and so that's a normal thing to have a boreal fire it's normal for them to be big what isn't normal frankly is to put a big city in the middle of the boreal forest which is a fire dependent system and human beings are discovering in some really painful ways now that you can only control nature so far you know you can you can have a you can have good fire protection you can have good flood protection but if you tweak the climate enough it will overwhelm your your efforts and no one can put out a boil fire especially now you really just have to get out of the way and that's what people in fort mcmurray did on may 3rd 2016 it was the largest fastest evacuation due to fire in modern times you write in all of human history there's never been a better time to be a fire and in this book fire has almost agency it is you know as the subtitle of the canadian edition says a beast and we all think we know what fire it is. We sit around campfires, we have fireplaces, maybe we've even seen a house fire or its after effects. Can you help explain for people how different a fire like the one that started coming towards Fort McMurray is from that common sense we have of what a fire is? Yeah, I really wrestled with that, Michael. Um, and fire is a really strange it's a strange beast uh even you know when it's in your fireplace or or at the end of a the wick of a candle it's 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 kind of a thing but it's not a thing you know it's kind of a vapor but it's also you know it really 
has an enormous effect on the environment around it. It'll burn your hand. It'll set your curtains on fire. You really have to be careful with it. And so it's um, it's a chemical reaction. And again, when we think of chemistry or chemicals, we think of you know something in a test tube that you pour or maybe a powder somewhere. And so fire is is hard for a layperson like myself to, to, to wrap his head around. And one way to think about it is it's an appetite and and we're appetites too and and what's what a fire is doing it's it's reacting with oxygen and so are we so we're breathing and we're burning energy we talk about burning calories one way to think of a human being or any mammal is we're we're like a fire we just burn more slowly it just it takes us you know 70 or 80 years you know to burn out but we're we generate heat we consume fuel, we produce, we off-gas CO2. These are all things that fire does also. And what the reason why fire is hot is because what it likes to eat, the food that fire likes to eat is hydrocarbons. And, that, and so that can come from wood, it can come from gasoline, it can come from really any living thing or anything that was alive. And oil, petroleum products all come from, um, uh, from living creatures uh, from ancient times. So, um, you know, various algaes and phytoplanktons and things like that uh, that have been curing under the ground for ages. But it's all uh, burning things that were once alive. And so that could be a dead tree or it could be ancient ancient petroleum. And so what the reason why fire is hot, though, is it can't eat the log. It, it can't burn the gasoline what it what it wants to burn is the vapor and that's the same way you would feed uh you would not stick an apple in a baby's mouth you would you would make applesauce and and that way this toothless baby could mix it in its saliva and swallow it down and derive energy from it really fire is the same way and it needs baby food too and the baby food that the fire eats is vapor it's gas it's gas vapors and so the what the heat does is it heats the object up whether it's a log or a plastic chair or a, a cotton curtain or a sofa or or anything and by heating it up it releases the hydrocarbon vapors and that's what the fire's reacting with it's not burning the thing it's burning the vapors around it and so what was happening in the Fort McMurray fire you had temperatures that were 10 degrees Celsius uh, above normal, actually, honestly, 15 or 20 degrees Celsius above normal. I go from Fahrenheit to Celsius, which is tricky for, for everybody. Um, and then you had relative humidity down around 11%, which is really basically like Death Valley in July. So we're in Northern Alberta with Death Valley humidity and Southern California temperatures. And now you have a wildfire in a system that's already generates huge fires. And now it's amped up with this extra heat. What's coming off that wildfire is radiant heat. That's the heat that you feel when you put your hand up close to a candle. It's coming out. It really touches you. You almost feel it pushing you away because it's so hot and your body doesn't want to be near that. So the heat coming off that wildfire that came out of the forest into Fort McMurray on May 3rd was about 500 Celsius. So that's that's hotter than Venus. It's it's another planet. And that kind of heat radiating, it moves at the speed of light. 
So everything that comes in contact with the head of the fire, whether it's a tree, a house, a car, immediately dries out. There's no humidity left, and it's immediately well over combustive temperatures. So the houses, when they were touched by this fire, didn't just catch on fire the way we've seen. We've all seen a house burn. A lot of the houses left when it's done. It's usually damaged most severely by the hose water from the fire department. This it, These fires didn't burn that way. These houses burnt down in five minutes because everything combusted at once. And so what you had with that 500 Celsius uh, radiant heat is when we think of the vapors releasing from the vinyl siding, from the tar shingles, from the rubber tires, from the propane tanks, from the wood itself in the house, from the polyethylene and polypropylene and the sofa and the laminates on the floor and the glues and the plywood, all that went to vapor instantly. And so all, all of a sudden there was this explosive, colossal amount of fuel for the fire. So it didn't need to heat anything up. It was already hot because of the radiant heat. So you had this explosive situation and no, the firefighters there had never seen anything like that. Certainly civilians had never seen anything like that. It's chemically possible. It's physically possible. When you look at firestorms like the Hamburg firestorm in World War II uh, that was set by tons and tons of firebombs dropped by Allied bombers, um, you can create those conditions, but it turns out forests can create the, can create those conditions too. And when you have already hot conditions further amplified by human-induced climate change, you get even more explosive conditions that are giving people experiences that they've never had before and, and, and that no normal firefighting apparatus can compete with. So it's really, it's, it's a new world that we've, uh, that we've created here uh, that has some pretty unique hazards that um, we don't have a means to fight against right now. You bring up this term that you call 21st century fire. We now have new phenomenon showing up inside a wildfire or around a wildfire that we've never seen before between Alberta, Australia, California. Can you can you describe some of those new characteristics that we're seeing as fire becomes more intense? The most obvious one, and this this just came up with everyone I spoke to, uh, regardless of the country or continent they were on. Uh, people experiencing these new what I call twenty first century fires, they're all struck by the speed. They just can't believe how fast they move. And so if, in Fort McMurray, for example, a lot of the fire uh, inside the city was started by flying embers. And when it's hotter, when it's drier as it is now, the embers last longer and they're sort of in better igniting condition when they land wherever they land, but also wherever they land on with that radiant heat, with that 30 Celsius uh, ambient temperature. And so when the when the ember lands in it, it bursts into flame. It doesn't smolder. It doesn't go out. It actually lights a fire. And then you multiply that by tens of thousands of times, because that's the number of embers that are being projected, you know, over a given acre uh, downwind from a fire. You have literally tens of thousands of tiny fires lighting at once. And then, you know, the wind, then you have that radiant heat coming off 
the fire proper and you have this explosive self-perpetuating system and what grows up out of that with increasing frequency are what are called pyrocumulonimbus clouds and they're these huge rotating firestorm clouds that we used to only see coming out of volcanoes and so we've you know we've seen you know read whether it's you know stories from the bible or stories um accounts of historic volcanoes where there's this huge black cloud which obviously a lot of that is eruption erupting energy but there's lightning inside it hails coming out of it you know really kind of old testament uh end of the world type uh events well that was happening above fort mcmurray there was black hail coming down on top of people. There was lightning coming out of that fire cloud that started new fires 30 kilometers away from Fort McMurray. So this system is so big, it reaches into the stratosphere at 15 kilometers tall, you know, 45,000 feet or so, uh, and it can perpetuate itself. And it's so big, it's so energetic that it almost it becomes not just a local fire event but really an atmospheric event something closer to a hurricane or a tropical storm and so that is uh that phenomenon the pyrocumulonimbus cloud is something that was really an, a kind of an oddity a curiosity in the 1990s and it didn't really enter the scientific literature in terms of wildfires until the very late 90s and i got to tell you canada has produced a hundred of those just this summer. And no one could have imagined that. You know, these are massive, massive systems with, with footprints that might be 70,000 square kilometers. You know, they're, they're storm-sized systems. Uh, they are regional events, they're not local events. And the fires across Canada have produced a hundred of those. Uh, just this summer and we've got a couple more months of of hot fire season to go so we're really just getting started here and so we're in we're in a new world it's really fair to say that and there was a term that i had never seen before and um, called pyrotornado genesis that 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 is honestly beyond the wildest imaginations of even the most um kind of visionary um climate futurists uh the other term for that the 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 street name for it is uh fire tornado and these are not to be confused with fire whirls which are these little spirals of flame <laughs> that occur fairly commonly in a, in a big fire and those are quite dangerous they generate a lot of wind you don't want to be anywhere near them but a fire tornado is not just uh, a catchphrase and it's not just a Hollywood film. It's an it's an actual EF rated um, enhanced Fujita scale rated tornado system that is generated out, out of a wildfire. The first one of these, and this for me was a real marker for 21st century fire. The first one of these occurred outside Canberra, Australia in 2003. And it came right out of a big wildfire, exceptionally hot day, hilly conditions, um, and it produced this tornado that, you know, tore houses off their foundations. And uh, people, of course, wondered, well, maybe that's a one-off. Maybe that was just some weird atmospheric freak that's in Australia, that's far away, doesn't really concern us up here in the Northern Hemisphere. In 2018, 
in Redding, California. This is Northern California. This is not Southern California. We're close to Oregon here. Um, there was an exceptionally hot day. It was well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, high 30s um, Celsius. Uh, a accidentally uh, caused fire started from a, a flat tire and, and um, the wheel rim grinding on the on the pavement started a fire. Three days later, it roared into the town of Reading. It's about the same size as Fort McMurray. And at about eight o'clock p.m., so we're in, in the evening, when fires usually start to settle down, it's still well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And this fire tornado erupted up out of the out of the fire and tore through several neighborhoods, killed five people. And I went there uh, for the Guardian newspaper. And you know, when, when I walked the ground uh, uh, that this fire tornado had swept through uh, outside of Reading, um, the, the effects I saw the closest analogy would be photos I've seen of a, of a nuclear blast in, in, in Nagasaki or Hiroshima. The, the houses were simply gone. Everything was burnt. The, the topsoil was gone. There were these 100-foot-tall steel transmission towers used for running high-tension cables You know, across landscapes. These were torn off their concrete foundations, crumpled up and thrown into the forest. Um, you know, huge uh, sea can containers that, you know, weigh multiple tons, just torn apart like Kleenex boxes and heaved hundreds of yards across the landscape. Um, you know, I think one of the most striking images for me was finding cast iron skillet. These were hundreds of meters from the nearest house. Not only was everything burned, but any man-made object that at all, you know, was left with that was made of metal was still rendered unusable almost unrecognizable yeah. it was a you know it was a scarring thing to behold I, I just couldn't believe that nature could do this particularly fire because it isn't like a flood which has the weight of water fire it's just air right it's just hot air but it generates so much energy in this new atmosphere that we've created by burning fossil fuels non-stop for 200 years that we're now really living in a different atmosphere that has different capabilities than most of us grew up with. And that is really going to take some getting used to. The images from Fort McBurry often focused on the evacuation. We had the harrowing images of an entire town trying to get out on a single highway with fires burning right up to the guardrails of the road. And what was remarkable were the absence of fatalities in a disaster that burned down most of the city. In that particular case, were we just lucky? Like, was was luck just on our side? Michael, I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, I really hope people study that. That there there is so much to be learned from Fort McMurray and from its fire. Um, Already there, you know, there are 15 fatalities in Algeria from wildfires. Uh, two pilots have died in Sicily uh, fighting fires there. Um, almost everywhere there are big fires, even in BC with Lytton, uh, in California, in Australia, you have multiple fatalities. Um, Alberta is different. Uh, there were no one died in the Slave Lake fire in 2011, a, a helicopter pilot. I mean, there was one fatality, but no one was killed by the flames, even though, you know, they were moving as fast as they were in Fort McMurray. Fort McMurray, somehow nearly 90,000 people got out of there 
in one piece. So no one was killed by the flames. No one was left behind. And I think this is something that I think we really need to pay attention to because, you know, there's there you see these films about zombie apocalypse and these social breakdowns and everybody getting really feral and, and you know, every man for himself and, you know, these really horrible scenarios. Fort McMurray, everyone should know, had 80 first languages spoken there in 2016. So it was a united nations of people from all over the world, many different religions, many different world concepts, many probably very different definitions of even what a risk is. And yet, when that fire came into town, the human net, the, the, the net of society closed around everybody and caught everybody. And it didn't matter what language you spoke. It didn't matter what color you were. It didn't matter what God you worshiped. Everybody got out. There was always somebody knocking on a door, next door, nearby, in an office, uh, in a neighborhood, making sure that nobody was left behind. And so I don't think it was luck. I think it was social cohesion, uh, but I also think a factor is it's a young population. And, and so like in the terrible campfire in, in the town of Paradise, California, you had 73 fatalities, I think. Many of those were elders. Uh, and but, you know, they only had one road out, just like Fort McMurray, but they were elders and um, they weren't able to move as quickly. But still, that there are elders in Fort McMurray, too. And I, I really think that that says a lot for Fort McMurray. It says a lot for Alberta. It really says a lot for Canada <laughs> that we can absorb that many people and and keep them safe. Um, this was not a this wasn't, you know, Denmark. This wasn't a homogeneous population <laughs> who all operated by the same codes and all knew each other, you know, since they were kids. This was a really complex, transient population that got itself together in incredibly short order and had a basically a 100 percent success rate with nearly 90,000 people. And on a on a good day in any city, that doesn't happen. You lose people every day in cities. So May 3rd, 2016 was a historic event, not just for fire, but for society. And it's something that should make us proud uh, to be Canadian, to, proud to be human. And it really gives us uh, something to aspire to. That It sets the bar really high. And it's it, that was extraordinary. And I'm really glad you brought it up. Mm -hmm. Now, those of us who pay any attention at all to wildfires often focus on the fighting of them. Fires are either under control or out of control. We think about smoke jumpers and fire breaks and water bombers. One of the things that becomes clear in your telling of the story of the Fort McMurray fire is that you don't really fight fire like this. Did we learn anything about how we engage with fires like this from the events in 2016? That is is such a good question. And it's so, it really comes up hard against human beings' sense of their place in the world. And, you know, we have an in, in, incredible uh, control over events or, or we 
believe we do. I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, what we do need to acknowledge is that, you know, post-World War II, which was when smoke jumpers and and really aggressive and successful fire suppression became institutionalized across North America, we've had incredible success with controlling wildfires and keeping them out of the built environment. And what we're realizing now is that control only goes so far. And in one of the ways we controlled our environment is by drawing hydrocarbons out of the ground in the form of, of coal and oil and gas and creating incredible energy, incredible wealth, incredible mobility, incredible power for human beings. You know, there's really nothing we can't do. You know, we can, I mean, just the miracle of jet flight you know, is really something every time I get on a plane, I just marvel at it. And those are, you know, fossil fuels driving this heavier and air thing safely at unsafe speeds through through the atmosphere and landing us somewhere else safely. And it's just, you know, it's unbelievable what we've done. So you can see why human beings might get a little cocky. L look, look what we have achieved. And yet we are, we, it's almost like you know, we want all the power, but we're not quite ready for the responsibility that 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 places on us. And one of the responsibilities that we have shirked, frankly, is taking responsibility for the emissions caused by all that power. And a human being, you know, when, when we eat, when we stoke our own internal fires, we off gas, you know, and we all know what that uh, sounds like and smells like, and it's not that nice. And when you, every car we drive, every water heater we light, every power station that, that we fuel, there are emissions uh, coming off of that. And our atmosphere isn't infinite. It's a, it's a relatively closed system. And so we're releasing massive quantities of, of toxic and, and climate changing gases into the atmosphere. And the atmosphere is, starting to tell us you know it's a lot it's a lot and it might be too much and it actually might be too much for you humans because this atmosphere is hotter now it's more conducive to fire it's more conducive to drought it's more conducive to unsafe temperatures for human beings look at phoenix arizona right now look at sicily or or, or southern italy right now these are temperatures where it's physically unsafe just to be outside. Again, this is not a world that we were born into. This is a world that we made. And this is the other half of this incredible power and agency that we've generated for ourselves through almost mastering petroleum products. And this is, you know, it creates this weird tension yeah. uh, because we, we are habituated to these appetites now we're used to be being able to just hop in the car and, and go pick up some milk if we want to but it really this power that we have is really it's it's honestly experimental even though michael you and i and people a lot older than us were, were born into this and habituated to cars and petroleum uh even jet planes it's new 1870 was not that long ago. And before that, there really wasn't, you know, petroleum in this form. And so we've only been doing this for a few generations. And already nature is telling us, you know, you have to find a new way. And climate change spends the first half of the book kind of in the background. 
you know, it's in and around everything that is unfolding in the story, but it doesn't get introduced as a character until the, so to speak, until the fire is well underway. You, know, you set the stage talking about warmer than expected springs and earlier fire seasons and lower than normal ground moisture. And then in the middle of the book, you uh, you give us an overview of the history of climate science and specifically pertaining to the study of atmospheric CO2 produced by burning fossil fuels. And one of the things that really struck me was, I th- you know, and I think a lot of listeners think of climate change science as this kind of bleeding edge thing, you know, where we're building computer models about calculating fractions of degrees of warming, but people have been working on this for a while. Can you can you talk a little bit about how far back that climate science goes? It is so uh, fascinating and really, in a way, dismaying how much we knew how long ago. And the greenhouse effect, the the tendency of uh, water, water vapor and CO2 to hold heat close to ground level and create, you know, a, a lovely livable environment for us. Um, that concept was understood in principle by the 1770s. So the United States hadn't even had a revolution yet. And people were already understanding that, okay, there's something going on with vapor and gas that is creating a different environment uh, at ground level as opposed to at, at the tops of mountains. So already people were realizing, okay, there's something, there's, there's sort of a sweet spot here. There's something going on. Before the first industrial oil well was dug in 1858 in Enniskill in Ontario, uh, two years before that, Eunice Foote, uh, a citizen scientist from upstate New York, did the first what could be called modern climate experiment, where she compared uh, a cylinder of regular old air with a cylinder of what was then called carbonic acid, now known as CO2, carbon dioxide. She took these two cylinders that were sealed and she put them out in the sun. And what she noticed was the cylinder full of CO2 heated up really fast and got extremely hot. And then when she took these two cylinders out of the sun, that cylinder took a lot longer to cool off. So, And she knew by then, we knew that there was CO2 in our atmosphere. We didn't exactly understand how it worked, but we knew that there was CO2 and that it fluctuated through history, hence ice ages and then interglacial warming periods. And so this is the 1850s. I mean, it's really amazing. Canada was not confederated then. And already people were understanding the basics of climate science. By the 1890s, people were speculating that industrial CO2 generated at that time largely by coal burning um, had the potential power to change the Earth's climate. In the 18, this is 130 years ago, people understood CO2 well enough and understood industrial emissions well enough to be able to extrapolate out as scientists do. They didn't have the proof yet because it was too soon that, you know, people were not, were barely driving cars then. By the 1930s, 
people were starting to de actually detect trends in warming. But, you know, was that an anomaly? Was it, uh, you know, there, there have always been temperature fluctuations. Um, and that, you know, is something, you know, used by people who have a hard time with climate science to explain what's going on right now. But what's um, what was then developed further, once people were able to measure in the 1950s, again, this is a really long time ago, most of us were not alive yet. In the 1950s, it became possible to measure parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. So you could actually track it. And what has been tracked, look at the Keeling curve of, of CO2, that it's been climbing steadily. And what tracks right along with it, almost in lockstep, is uh, planetary temperature. And so what we're seeing is as you increase CO2, you also increase the likelihood of warming. And all those chickens are really coming home to roost now that, that there we've got temperatures in the, the mid and high 30s in the ocean, in the Mediterranean now and in the Gulf of Mexico. This, these are sea surface temperatures um, of over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. These are these are hot tub temperatures. Coral, needless to say, does not do well. Fish don't do well. It's not normal. And meanwhile, the the actual air temperatures are pushing in, you know, to the 40s, pushing 50 degrees Celsius in a, in a lot of parts of the world right now. And these are temperatures that Homo sapiens, our species, cannot flourish in. Okay. And so this has never happened before. These kinds of temperature increases have never ever occurred there's nothing in the climate record that show increases of this speed when you look at the deviations the changes uh in air temperature in sea ice extent all these are sort of starting to break free from nice natural uh ascents and descents and going more vertical and when you look at the amount of uh, heat energy released by Canadian fires this year compared to other fire seasons in the 21st century. This is like a vertical spike. That's it. Uh, and it's really shocking. It's really uncharted territory. So as you and I speak to each other now, Michael, you know, the, the world is ongoing. Our planet is ongoing, a radical transformation. And we are going to be getting data, real-time data back on that with every headline. Fire weather has a tone that I don't read often in a work of narrative nonfiction. And, and what I mean is, now, as I'm reading, I can almost feel you, the author, grabbing me by the lapels, you know, that you really need me to understand what is happening here. You know, it's not enough for me to think that it's interesting or to understand or be informed. Am I reading too much into that? Or is that part of your emotional relationship to this book? is try to get people to understand with this sense of urgency. Uh, I think if you talk to a lot of climate scientists, they all feel this sense of urgency. They've seen this coming. They've tried to communicate it in a variety of ways. And it feels like it's falling on deaf ears. And, and frankly, Michael, if you had seen what I have seen in Fort McMurray, in Redding, California, in Australia, you would feel that urgency too. It's it's so intense. Uh, you know, sitting down with a firefighter and asking him about his experience, and him telling you, "Well, yeah, the um, yeah, the houses took about five minutes to burn down, 
And, you know, we all know how big a house is. And I say, well, you know, I th okay, this guy's exaggerating or he was really adrenalized and maybe in shock at the mo at, at the time and, and wasn't commuting, computing time correctly. And then we sit down calmly and I say, no, well, well, you know, talk me through that. And he talks me through it. And then I talk to a, a physicist uh, who specializes in in house combustion and domestic structure fire. And this is all possible but you need really extreme conditions to do it. And then going from there to Reading and seeing what that fire tornado did, um, these are searing experiences. And as a journalist, you know, I'm, I'm a communicator. That's, that's what I do. That's what I'm compelled to do. But this feels absolutely urgent because it could happen to us. You know, I realized, okay, these folks in Fort McMurray, where they live, isn't that different from where I live, from where most of the Northern Hemisphere lives. Uh, so they are messengers from the future. It's a near future. It's not one that's easy for us to imagine, but it really happened. It's not speculative. This really happened to them. And then you go down to Australia and the Southern Hemisphere, that really happened to them. It got so hot in 2009 during the Black Saturday fires that people died from the radiant heat alone. That, that Again, that projected heat that moves at the speed of light off the leading edge of a wildfire. It was so hot, it killed people in their tracks. They weren't burned. They were just killed by the heat. A lot of livestock died that way too. It, so radiant heat when it's hot enough is like a death ray mm -hmm. you don't need to burn anybody you just hit them with that intense blast of heat and and they die and uh that is really scary and that is new that's not something that's happened to us before so um so this urgency is really out of concern for my fellow human beings you know not just for myself uh i feel like um I don't know. I don't feel that concern for myself, but I I saw I saw what losing your home and and the terror of a of a fire lined evacuation does to people's heads and psyches and emotions. What it does to their children. I interviewed a lot of people in Fort McMurray. A lot of them have PTSD. Not just firefighters, but people who are driving out through the flames, trying to keep it together, and with kids in the back seat. You know, what do you tell them? What do you tell them when you're driving through smoke that's so thick you can't see the end? Mommy, daddy, are we gonna die? And you don't know. You literally don't know if you're gonna live or die or not. Right now, people are having to answer that question in Algeria, in Sicily, in Portugal. That's literally happening right now. There are evacuations going on right now in the Northwest Territories, in British Columbia, Canadians are having to ask that question and answer it for their kids, and they don't know what the answer is. And I really feel a lot of compassion for them. And I think Canadians and authorities, a government in Canada should take this as seriously as humanly possible. This is not a future scenario. This is literally happening now as you and I talk to each other. People are going through this or are doing this terrible math in their heads. What are my chances of getting through this? What are what are the chances my house will be there when I get back? If I get back. As you engaged with people 
in Fort McMurray after the fact, people who are embedded in the fossil fuel industry, but who have also encountered the effects of climate change at its, you know, at its most impactful. Yeah. Did people feel like they'd, yeah, they felt the effects of climate change firsthand? Michael, it is a surreal experience. Uh, I had really good conversations with a number of people in Fort McMurray and, you know, people were incredibly honest with me and intelligent and perceptive, hardworking. These are people you really want to have as your neighbors. That's one reason everybody got out of there is because of people like that. These are people you want to have around you. But even though they saw you know, talk about the bleeding edge of climate change. The Fort McMurray fire was that. Uh, that was a, a climate change enhanced fire. Uh, when you look at the temperatures, which were off the charts, when you look at the relative humidity, which was off the charts in the other direction, when you look at what's called the fire weather index, that was off the charts. Everything was out of the normal bounds, totally attributable to, to enhanced CO2 and methane in our atmosphere. They don't really want to talk about it and i think when your entire livelihood and a lot of your identity has been formed and supported and nurtured by a particular industry like the petroleum industry it's given people such incredible opportunities incredible wealth a lot of people feel a lot of pride working in that industry uh they've been able to live a lifestyle that they can feel proud of a lot of them have not come from money so they're making money for the first time and that's you know it's it really stinks to be poor. And so if you're able to advance your lifestyle and, and quality of life, you're gonna do that. Uh, but what's really interesting is, is these folks who, who literally lived through it have now, have you know many of them have gone and voted for a party for whom climate change is an off limits topic. People literally will not speak of it. <laughs> and so there is this kind there is this kind of psychic intellectual gymnastics being performed where yeah we'll we'll deal with the fire and 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 we'll acknowledge how severe the fire was but we don't want to change our behavior and we don't want to analyze what the causes for that fire might be we'll just sort of try to do better next time which in fact they i'm not sure they are because the houses are being just rebuilt bigger but you know, vinyl siding, tar shingles, the same flammable stuff, because the modern house is actually has an unbelievable number of petroleum products in it, which are super flammable. So there's a contradiction there. And that is one that uh is kind of an elephant in the Canadian living room, because I think it it that stretches way beyond Alberta. Uh, we have this entanglement with the petroleum industry right now and all the wonderful things that it's given us and endowed us with. And yet there's this dark side to it. Uh, and so there, you have the CO2 and you have the methane and you have its climate changing characteristics, but you also have an industry that has an industry within it of misinformation <laughs> so that they're actually working to to create confusion and minimize the real threat of climate change and what what the ceos of of the big petroleum companies have have essentially said these are you know darren woods of exxon or ben van burden of shell um they have basically said we're going to keep burning 
So they have disconnected themselves from any sense of responsibility for the planet. You know, take, you know, that they may, they might have a windmill here or there, they might do carbon offsets, but in terms of real action, which is reducing uh, CO2 dramatically, they're not going there. They're making too much money, they're beholden to shareholders, and they've decided to kind of abdicate responsibility for that and leave it to somebody else. And that is literally where we are right now. And so there's a real dissonance between these spectacular, lethal, historic fires that are literally burning right now as you and I speak to each other and the petroleum industry that is seeking to expand uh, its own footprint as we speak to each other. So we're really in conflict now. And that is going to, if we don't resolve it, Michael, nature will resolve it. And already Alberta has had numerous shutdowns of petroleum operations due to smoke and fire. So nature will shut it down if, if we can. John, thank you so much for joining us. Michael, what a pleasure to meet you and uh, speak with you today. Thank you. I've been speaking with John Valley, author of Fireweather, The Making of a Beast. Find it at Kobo and Conversations home on the web, kobo.com slash conversation. Check the show notes for a link. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and share it with someone. That warm feeling they'll get for hearing about a book that they should read is a certified carbon neutral heat source. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.